Hello and welcome to a bumper week, the start of a bumper week here on the Tennis Fanalist podcast. The first episode, you're going to get two episodes coming at you this week, so uh, very lucky listeners, I think. Uh, I'm Marcus Alley and I'm joined by Michael Gillett, as always. How are you doing? I'm very excited uh, for our first ever week with more than one podcast on. It could be exhausting uh, for us and the listeners, but uh, yeah, it's going to be good fun. Yeah, we had to uh, pick it up a notch all sort of looking forward to um, the Cincinnati, well, move from Cincinnati to Flushing Meadows Western and Southern Open with qualifying kicking off on Thursday. Um, so just to start the pod with, with the news section, we're not actually going to have any trivia in this in this particular episode because we've got a very special guest coming on later in the show. But just to start with the big headline that came out in the last 24 hours, and that is that sadly... Kei Nishikori of Japan, a former top tenor and Grand Slam finalist, has contracted coronavirus. Michael, what was your initial reaction to the news? Yeah, obviously really sad uh, when, whenever you see a uh, sporting professional or, or anyone uh, go down with it. But I think living in the world that we're, we're all becoming accustomed to, it's something that you know, you've know you got to prepare for. I can't imagine we were going to go the whole of sort of this US tennis swing without hearing of any infections anywhere. Uh, I mean, we heard, I think it was an unnamed female uh, was uh, tested positive at the Palermo Open just the other week. So, you know, it's, it's always going to happen. Um, obviously means Nishikori is going to miss uh, the Western and Southern Open. But uh, he they're getting tested again on Friday, I believe, him and his team. And... Um, and yeah, if hopefully they, they come back negative in that test and uh, he is still hoping that he can play the US Open, which obviously, as you say, a former Grand Slam finalist, obviously that came at the US Open. So it's a tournament that he uh, he is going to really enjoy. Yeah, it does feel like a little setback for, for the return of tennis. Obviously, in recent weeks, we really haven't been hearing that much news about the players physically having the virus themselves, obviously all um, very fit professionals themselves. So, I mean, you'd hope that, um, yeah, the virus shouldn't, shouldn't get the better of them. But yeah, um, hopefully, yeah, I echo what, you, what, what you've said. Um, Nishikori can just uh, come through the other side of this um, a bit stronger. Um, moving on to some other news, um, and it's some withdrawals once again, sadly, at the US Open. But this time it's from the WTA side. Um, in the recent days, it's been known that Bianca Andreescu, the reigning champion, has withdrawn, along with Belinda Bencic and Simona Halep, the uh, reigning champion of Wimbledon, of course. She's going to be reigning champion for two years, it seems like. Um, and the Romanian uh, former world number one, Halep, I'm pretty sure, um, had just won Prague this week, a tournament in Prague, a ranking event. However, explained her decision to withdraw from the US Open saying that thinking that leaving Europe is that step too far. And obviously, you know, I respect her decision. Um, it's, a bit, it's about being comfortable at this point. Um, but yeah, those three, and in addition, um, Elena Svitolino withdrew uh, a couple of weeks ago, it means that three of the last four, three of the four semi-finalists in the 2019 um, US Open on, on the women's side will not be competing this year. Obviously, I think we've both portrayed some frustration towards the tournament in in the last couple of episodes but uh how do you feel after this another kick in the teeth 
Yeah, it's a huge hit to the women's side. Um, Bianca Andreescu uh, is, as you know, she's only 20 years old. Um, she won the US Open as a, a teenager last year, beating Serena Williams in the final. You know, so it was you know, one of the biggest, biggest events of tennis of the year uh, to see Serena Williams losing to uh, a teenager. Um, at the US Open final, very much how Serena Williams was was first winning Grand Slams. So, um, yeah, it's a huge hit for the women's side. Um, Simone Halep, also a huge loss, um, also beat Serena Williams last year in, in the Wimbledon final. Um, you know, yeah, it's, re- it's really sad to see uh, that all of these, these names are being lost. I think, you know, on the women's side, we, we can become more used to seeing different semi-finalists uh, at the Grand Slams. So, you know, potentially if we get three new semi-finalists uh, or four new semi-finalists, if Serena Williams doesn't make it to the semi-final, perhaps it's not um, as unusual as it is on the men's side. But, um, yeah, definitely some, some big names being lost. Um, uh, so, yeah, Andreescu hasn't actually played a match all year in that, and that's because of injury. So, that's obviously really upsetting for her uh, as as a young player and especially not to be able to come back to the, the Grand Slam that she won on her debut. Uh, you know, it's, it's really sad. Yeah, and uh, I think it just, as we have spoken about before with, with these withdrawals, just pre- presenting that opportunity um, for, for the, the lower-ranked players and, and less experienced players in, uh, in Grand Slams to, to go deeper into them, uh, maybe with... Yeah, just a just a weaker field, and maybe even being less uh, nervous of the big stage if there are sort of less fans, um, which has seemed very very likely uh, than compared compared to recent years. So yeah, it's just up up to see uh, which players can step up to the plate. Uh, the next item on the agenda is um, some good news and some bad news. Uh, the ATP Tour final has had dates confirmed. Obviously, a great tournament that we love to watch it. So the 15th of November to the 22nd. So still quite a few months down the line. However, the current plans are still to have it behind closed doors. No, um, yeah, no, no staggered re- reintroduction of fans into the crowd at all. Uh, what was the initial take on it, Michael? Yeah, I think my initial take from it is, is how sad it is because it's actually the last year that it's uh, planned to be in London at the O2 and then it's going to move to uh, Turin in Italy. And, um, you know, I think that is really sad in itself. It's a tournament I've been to uh, three or four times now at the O2, and I love the atmosphere there. I think it's it's very different to your sort of Wimbledon setup, obviously, obviously with it being indoors at the O2, but, you know, you've got that one court uh, atmosphere, which I think is really nice. You know, if you're not missing any of the action, you've only got one court to focus on, and you're always guaranteed at the finals you know, if you get a ticket to the finals, regardless of what day you're going on, you're you're guaranteed to see one of the best players in the world. You know, it's the top eight players on the men's side, uh, potentially nine or ten if um, a player or two have to drop out. But you know, if you if you, you get a ticket there, you, you're always guaranteed to see world class players. And I think you know, just really sad that obviously the last time it's going to be played no two. And I think I was reading. I think it debuted at the O2 in 2009, I believe, um, or around then. So, you know, 
about the 11th or 12th uh, time at the O2 and they're now going to have to do without fans, which I think really make that tournament. The atmosphere there is brilliant. Um, first time I went, I want to say, when I honestly, I'm not sure which year it was, but um, Roger Federer played Joe Wilfred Songa. And, you know, for me at the time, Songa was my favourite player. Federer, the best player ever lived, um, certainly at the time. And, um, yeah, the atmosphere was just cracking. It was amazing. So it's a real miss uh, for the fans this, this time around. And welcome to the second part of this Tennis Fanless podcast. And I'm very delighted to say we've got a special guest joining us, uh, Tim Farving, the owner of Tennis Head. Uh, which is a magazine and website uh, which looks all at tennis news uh, is joining us. So hello, Tim. Hi there, guys. Nice to nice to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, yeah, we've got just a few bits uh, we want to talk about with you today. Uh, obviously, quite a bit going on, uh, which is surprising because there hasn't been a lot of tennis, uh, competitive tennis, going on recently. Um, but but firstly. Um, what what are your sort of views at the moment on the tennis returning? Do you think it's looking like a, a good a good thing for tennis, or do you think it could be a little bit too early? Um, well, from a from a tennis magazine owner point of view, I, I want tennis to be back as quickly as possible, and I think that any tennis fan or any tennis player who you spoke to would, would say that as well, and that's why the majority of players are going to play in these tournaments. Um, so the reason Federer is not playing now is because he's injured. Um, the reason Nadal isn't playing yet is, I think, mainly because of the short amount of time between the end of the US Open and the start of the clay court season. Because if you said to Nadal, what would you prefer to win? You know, he, he, he wouldn't normally give his preference, but... I bet you if he, if he had to, he would say, I prefer to win the French Open over the US um, just because of it's Nadal. So I think he may have looked at it and said, OK, I'm not going to have enough time. If I win the US Open or get to the final, I'm not going to have enough time to prepare properly. Because obviously he's, he's famously, you know, famously uh, his preparation is, is, is hugely important to him, as I suppose all the pros. Um, so I think that, yeah, from that, from those, you know, if you look at fans want it back, uh, players want it back, people who work in tennis want it back. And I think if it can be done safely, which, uh, you know, from what I'm hearing about the US Open, the organisers are taking it extremely seriously. The, 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 the guidelines they put forward are, um, they've obviously taken a lot of time and preparation over these. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's, it's great that it seems to be that it's going to go ahead. Yeah, um, that, that's a really interesting point you make about Nadal, actually. I, I hadn't sort of looked at it through that lens uh, as much, but obviously I guess with a lot of the injury problems that he has had and his age, it definitely does sound plausible that he, he could be missing it more for tactical reasons um, rather than than that. Um so do you, I was going to ask, um, interestingly, with, with all these players pulling out, um, obviously we've had the, the long break. It's obviously really hard to tell at the moment, but how do you think it will change uh, sort of the climate at the top of the game? Do you think that 
it could be a really bad thing for the big three in the sense that, you know, you've had the time off where perhaps the young players have really had a chance to limit distractions, really focus on their game. And do you, do you think maybe the big three haven't quite had the same motivation to do so? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that, um, uh, I, I mean, we've, we've interviewed quite a few of quite a few players during this time and they have all said that they've been really focused and, you know, they've been um, doing a lot of work on their fitness, um, a lot of work on their stuff like their diets and all that sort of stuff. But that is what the top players do all the time anyway. Um, you know, Fed, how many tournaments a year does Federer actually play? He probably, you know, he might play what ten or twelve tournaments a year. So, um, uh, and and the same. Often Nadal would miss big chunks of the season if he if he got injured by playing in a in a in a long run of tournaments. Then he would have a lot of time off. So, um, I don't think it's going to be detrimental because also, you know, the the, the top players like Federer, Nadal, Murray, and Djokovic are. They are the top players because of what they do during a match. Um, it's not necessarily so much about what they do off the court. Uh, I mean, they obviously do that very well as well. But actually, when they get into the thick of it, when they get into those crucial points, it's, it's how they perform at the crucial time that makes them so good. Um, I mean, actually, that, so we work with a guy called Craig O'Shaughnessy who does a lot of statistics. And um, he pointed out that even if you win a tennis tournament, you may have only won 50 to 55% of the points that you've played in. Uh, so, um, but obviously what the, the top guys do is they make sure they're winning the important points. Uh, and, you know, they're not, they're not uh, as worried if they lose other points because they know that they're not the key points. So I, I don't think that this timeout is going to change that dynamic. Um, I don't think suddenly someone's going to become a Grand Slam winner who you wouldn't have expected to. Um, but I think you've got a very good chance at the US Open that someone like Team or Sitsipas, um gets to the final and, and really pushes, uh, pushes, pushes to win it. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that me and Marcus have talked about quite a bit on the, the podcast recently, what sort of effect it's going to have on the US Open. It's, it's the first Grand Slam uh, since 1999 that neither Nadal and Federer have, uh, neither one of them has played at, which you know, I found that amazing, to be honest, when I heard that. And I, I thought we were discussing last week about whether if you win the title at the US Open, do you think that because only one of the big three was there, do you think winning the title, say it wasn't Djokovic that won it, do you think it would take away some of the integrity a little bit and the achievement if a player went through the draw and didn't have to beat one of the big three? Um, Not at all. I I don't think that people will remember. Because actually, if you think about the time that Federer won the French Open, um, he didn't beat Nadal. And so uh, are people saying that he's not the complete player because he won the French without beating Nadal? No, because, you know, in sport, you can only beat who's in front of you and you can't control who else is there. I mean, you know, when, um, uh, you know, when Murray got to number one in the world, he went on this amazing run. But at the time, you know, there weren't all of the big four players weren't playing all the time. Um, but no one says that, you know, so no one says he didn't deserve to be number one because he got there by, you know, by the, being the best player. And so um, 
I don't, I don't think this idea of putting an asterisk by the winner to say, oh, it was, um, you know, it was because uh, that all the players weren't. No, I don't think that matters because you know Federer is injured, so he wasn't going to play the US Open anyway. Um, and and often you might only have. Um, I mean, okay, yeah, like you say, it's, it has been what fifteen years since you hadn't had either of them. But you don't to win a Grand Slam. You don't always have to beat both of them. Um, and I'm sure if you look back at all of Djokovic's wins or Murray's wins or whatever, it'd be interesting to see you know how many times did they have to beat both of them to win a Slam, which is probably quite rare. Yeah, it's a fair point actually. With players quite often like Djokovic will go through Grand Slams and they won't have to play Nadal and Federer and they might come up against more of a sort of fringe player like a Kevin Anderson in the final and and yeah. people don't tend to bring that up as much as to whether maybe if if a lower-ranked player did win it. Um, Marcus? Yeah, if I could just come in here to pick your brains a bit, um, Tim. We, we've spoke a lot about up-and-coming players in the last few weeks on the podcast and obviously you mentioned... Dominic Team and, and Stefanos Tsitsipas there. Are those two names that you think above the rest of the field that are yet to win their first Grand Slam title maybe um, look more convincing than, say, uh, Sasha Zverev? Are those um, two names, you'd say, are re- ahead of the rest of the pack in, the, in, in chasing the current Grand Slam winners? Um, I don't know if they're ahead of the pack right now, but I think they're the two that have got the potential. Um, to to make the step up, um, especially uh, I remember the first time I saw Sitsipas play uh, live was at was it two or three years ago? He had an amazing run at Washington or Cincinnati, and he made it through to I think the semis of the final. And I'd never seen him play before, and uh, I, I turned the telly on and I watched him play, and I was just amazed at how different he looked on the court. Um, his uh, you didn't hadn't seen a player like him for quite some time, and so I think for me, often that it's that when someone really strikes you as being different, that um, that's often a sign that they, you know, and that they they do well and be different. It's a sign that they've got potential to to, to really make it. Um, so for me, I think Sitsipas has has got the game to do it. Um, team has proved that he can make finals of Grand Slams um, and he won a set did he win oh no he had a very close first set with Nadal in the final of the French and Nadal just then beat him and then took you know obviously team was very tired after that but um, I think that he the fact that he, he's made it there is, um, is is a big thing yeah he's made two is he last two French Open finals last three uh, no, he's made yeah two two French Opens and he's yeah. made three in total by getting to the Australian of in course, January, yeah. uh, um, which I yeah. still think he he could and should have won. Team, I think he had that in his hands. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, the chance went from him. Um, yeah, so I think that um, those two for me are are probably the two that that's, that stand out right now and have, have you know, got the potential to take the next step. Um, so obviously the US Open marks the return uh, of singles Grand Slam tennis for Andy Murray. Uh, we haven't seen Andy Murray playing a singles Grand Slam since Australia last year, so nearly two years ago, or over a year and a half. Um, are you excited to see Andy Murray back? Do you think that maybe with, you know, obviously the current situation and there are players dropping out, do you think it maybe 
even opens up a path for him where you might actually see if the draw is kind to him, do you reckon he could actually get to a very respectable round? Uh, I think it's going to be tough um, because the way Murray plays is that he plays that it's quite attritional and he has to he has to be right at he, right at the top of his own game um, to be able to, to to grind down his opponents. And you know the best times that Andy Murray, the best time Andy Murray matches I've watched are where you can see he says to himself, "I am not walking off this court until I've won." Um, and you know I've watched so many matches of him where he, he's obviously you know he knows he's super fit. And he's he's at the top of his game, and so he just says, "I'm not going to lose to this person." Now, right now, I don't think he's at the top of his game because he hasn't got the matches under his belt, and I, you know, he won't have played a five-set match for uh, over probably two years. So I just don't think that he's he's got that level where he, he can do it because he's got to do it seven times to win a slam. Um, he might he might pull out an amazing five set victory against someone uh, once, but could he do it again? Um, and also, the interesting thing with Murray is he seems to have a bit of a change of attitude at the moment. I think that he's much more open with the media. He's much more open on social media. He's much more open with other players. Um, and I think that's because he might be looking at this period as his kind of as his swan song. Um, and, you know, he's looking at it going, right, I'm going to make sure I enjoy this period of my tennis because I'm not going to be around for forever. Um, so for him to make an impact in the US Open, I think you could get one or two wins out of him. I'm not sure if you'll get, get him to go all the way. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that. I do think, though, even for the big players... I think it's a stinker of a first round draw to get if you see mm. yourself against Andy Murray first round because uh, as you say first round he's he's, he's going to have a bit more energy and, and it is very plausible that he could could go one or two matches uh, looking really good. Um, so well there's just, only going to be in the US Open draw there's only going to be three Grand Slam winners in the draw which will be Djokovic, Murray and Cilic. I presume Chilich is playing. I haven't checked, yeah. but I think. I, I I was checking this the other day, and I think at the moment Chilich is playing. Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah. Well, that you're means... only, only going to have to play three people who've even won a Grand Slam. So, uh, yeah, to get Murray in the first round would be would be a horror of a draw for anyone, wouldn't it? So that would make Stan Vavrenka another player who's playing this week in in Europe, but has has decided that across the pond is it, is it? Yeah. too too big of a bridge for him uh, at the moment, which. Obviously, yeah. you understand those reasons. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so just moving on uh, from sort of the tennis climate at the moment and, and going on to you. Um, so obviously, you, you own Tennis Head. Um, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about, about Tennis Head and, and your history behind that? Um, well, Tennis Head has been around for, uh, I think it's getting close to 15 years now. It was started by my business partner, uh, Mike Frey, who is also a photographer on the ATP Tour. Um, but Mike started it and um, I only joined two years ago where I, I sold my previous business 
and um, got uh, got on board with with Mike at Tennis Head. Um, and but I, I've come from a tennis background, so I was a I was a decent player. I was sort of uh, um, you know I played sort of national level tennis uh, as a junior. Um, and then I played for went went to university. I played for England students when I was at university. Um, I played a few sort of semi professional tournaments, but you know I was never going to be a professional tennis player. But I was at a decent standard, so I've always I've always played a lot of tennis. Um, and then I've always worked in publishing. So um, I worked at various different magazines and websites um, through my career. And it just so happened that I had the opportunity to, to, to get involved with Tennis Head a couple of years ago. And so because tennis is my passion, it was, a, it was an easy decision to, um, to, to get involved as a business as well. Picking up on, on your background, obviously, um, quite a few of our listeners, I feel, might be... Um maybe budding journalists or people that are sort of at the stage where they don't, they have sort of a broad idea of um, what they might want to do as a certain career. And um, so you say tennis has always been your passion. So was that something that you'd always had in the pipeline after playing a lot um, when you were younger or something that you'd like to get, get into in a professional way or was there? no, I hadn't thought about working in tennis at all, in fact. And, and actually, what they always say is that if you love something, don't go and work in it, um, because it will ruin your enjoyment of it. And so I'd always kind of actually been the other way. I'd been like, right, I'm not going to work in tennis, because I love playing it so much. I don't want to spoil it. Um, and I, I, um, I coached for – I finished university, and I got a job as a tennis coach very briefly. And it, that's what happened, actually. I, I, I was coaching tennis, and I stopped enjoying tennis, because I was on the court all day, every day, and coaching. But um, so I stopped coaching and, and got a job in, in publishing, and um, uh, so I had I deliberately not wanted to work in tennis. But I've reached I'm you know 45 now, and so I've reached reached the stage where actually I think I'm, I'm probably got enough experience where I can still enjoy my tennis and and work in it. But you know what? When you're running a, a tennis magazine or a tennis website, it's uh, uh, it's there's the the job part of it where you're running a business basically. Um, and it just so happens that I've got a real interest in my business. But, you know, writing about tennis or doing marketing for tennis, it doesn't actually stop me then going out and playing tennis myself and having a, having a great time. So the, the two um, almost quite separate. You know, I, I'm not thinking about tennis head when I'm when I'm hitting tennis balls um, and when I'm working, I'm working. So um, I think so. You know, for if I had some advice for for people who are trying to get into uh, sort of tennis, whether they want to be a journalist or they want to work in tennis, um, I think that getting just just doing something in in the sport is a really good start. Um, and I think I wouldn't get sort of caught up on trying to get like to work for a big company because. Uh, you know, like being a salaried employee for a big company, because there aren't that many jobs like that in tennis. You know, you've got employers like IMG who run a lot of events. You've got employers like uh, the ATP, but they're not actually that huge companies. They don't have hundreds of people sitting at a desk just working out. So I think if you want to get into tennis, I would, you know, almost, you know, beg, steal and borrow, basically. So just try whatever you can. So like you guys are doing, you're running a podcast and you're probably learning every time you do it. Um, you know, go and offer to you know go and offer to be a you know a work at a tournament or something. You know, and so you get as many opportunities. But also, th- 
you know, this day and age, you can be your own business quite easily because of you know the way the technology is now. Um, you can you can run businesses very cheaply and easily. Which someone is interested in buying, then that you will be able to sell it to them. You don't need a shop anymore. You don't need a physical shop or a physical office to run a business. You can run a business from your smartphone. So I would suggest that, you know, almost try and maybe come up with a product that someone you think might be interested in. And, and you know, that, that could be your way in. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Just a different way of looking at it. I mean, I suppose definitely the course that I've been on, not too sure about um, whether Michael would uh, agree with this, but, you're, you're kind of told when, when you when you come out, just sort of uh, uh, dream big and try and attach yourself to the biggest companies and, and start the problem is, is probably one of, one of the uh, things that we've had recommended. So so yeah, just like as he said to him, sort of um, approaching it from from all different angles um, is uh, yeah definitely something interesting to take on board and um, yeah it should be uh, valuable advice to, to our listeners. Yeah, I think that, you know, when I finished university, there was a path that you got, a, you got a degree and, and therefore an employer would probably offer you a position. Um, in, in, but there aren't that number of large companies anymore. Um, the, the, the whole world has got more fragmented. Um, but also, especially in sports, there there's not a huge amount of money in tennis. If I'm honest, you know, there's obviously some some people have made a lot of money out of tennis, like some of the players and, and such. But outside of that, it's um, it, people want to work in it because they love it. And uh, I think that yeah, you've got to find any way you can. If you're desperate to work in tennis, you, yeah, you've got to be prepared to be creative. And don't just think because the ATP tour won't give you a, a you know a salaried employment role, it doesn't mean that's the end. You know, you can there there are lots of different ways that you can uh, you can make a living out of tennis. Okay, um, you got any other questions, Michael? I'd like just like to ask him more about his sort of consumer uh, as a fan of tennis. Anything about his preferences? Yeah, I was I was just gonna sort of go on. Yeah, no, go on, you go, Marcus. So yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a good, a good background um, to to you and 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 uh, to and tennis head. Um, so yeah, just as a fan, obviously, you said you've you've played the sport very regularly from from a young age. Um, is there anything that sticks out in your memory as like uh, outstanding matches or or, or favourite players that, that you've been able to watch, or or even if even more more current? Um, so do you mean from sort of matches that I've watched, you know, profession, professional tennis on, on telly, basically? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I ha- I've watched a lot of Andy Murray and, uh, I, I just love the way that he, he, I think I've mentioned it before. I've loved the way that he, you can see him working out the opposition. And so, um, you can see him, uh, you know, taking his time, um, to to see where he can win matches, to see where he can win points, and often he wouldn't he wouldn't be the best starter in a match. You know, there's a lot of examples of him losing the first set, but then going on to win the match. And um, I think he had so much confidence in his own ability to to keep going and to never give up, and also to be um, you know very clever in the way he played and what he would end up doing, the way he would win matches is often by just making opponents do what they didn't want to do. 
And you know, when I'm playing tennis, I know the ones I, I the people I hate playing are the ones who make me sort of play the shots I don't want to play. And Murray would just be the absolute master at doing that. Um, and I think that was something he did quite differently because from a very from the age of seventeen, you know, he started beating the likes of Federer and stuff just by just by making them play in a way they didn't want to. You know, Federer would steamroll at so many people just because they would try and beat Federer's own game. And Murray would refuse to do that and say, right, I'm going to make you do this. And, and I, I yeah, love watching him, um, love watching him do that. He was a match once. He was, he nearly lost in the first round of the French Open to that really tricky Czechoslovakian player whose name always um, eludes me. Burdic, maybe not the first Sorry? Um, was it Radek Stepanek? Stepanek, that's it, yeah. So, yeah, I remember. He, yeah, he played French Open against Stepanek and he was two points away from losing. Um, and But you could see Murray just wasn't going to lose. Uh, he wasn't, and uh, it got so close to losing. But Stepanek was another player who was very difficult to play against. And, and Murray just... just just dug deep and, and said, I'm not going to lose. And it was a brilliant example of, uh, of how Matt Murray's, you know, got to where he did. Yeah, I think, I don't know if that was the year that he made the final and lost to Djokovic, but I'm, I know that, yeah, I know that the year he did make the final, he got taken to five sets in his first two matches. Right. Uh, which I think, like you say, really shows sort of the, the grit that he has, you know, he, he might get taken to five sets early on, but it really doesn't matter because it's very much a game at a time for Murray. You know, if he can work out how to win a match, he'll 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 get through it if he's at the top of his game. Yes. Um, whereas, uh, you know, you look at Nadal, and Nadal plays a very similar game no matter who he's playing against. Um, I'm sure there are subtleties in what he does which we can't pick up. But you know, he, he's, he's very much this is my game. I'm going to play it, and if you can beat me at my game, then great. Whereas um, you know, I think that's what I enjoy so much about watching. One of one of the best things as well is being able to be when you're at a live tennis match, being able to just watch the one player because obviously on television you have to watch the ball because the camera decides what you watch. Whereas I went, I go to tennis tournaments and often I just watch the player and don't watch the ball. And Murray's movement, his speed of recovery after hitting a shot is absolutely incredible. You know, he would be outside the tram lines and he's got that ability to play the shot and get back into, into the rally very, very quickly. Um, and that's another thing that I, you know, absolutely love watching about him. Sure, yeah. Um, so I was just going to ask you, um, obviously it's clear that you're a huge tennis fan and, and you always have been. You played it from a young age. Was tennis in your family, was it always kind of a given? Were you, are you from a really big tennis family or was there just a point when you were a kid when you saw it on TV or something and you just decided that, that it was for you? Um, I'm, not, I'm not from a tennis family at all. We're, you know, reasonably sporty, but my, my dad was a, um, a squash player, and so he, but just a, a, you know, an amateur squash player, and so he, he was a horribly unorthodox tennis player. You know, sliced forehands and things like that. Um, uh, but uh, no, all that happened was my parents were playing at the local club, and um, they said that from the age of four, I would just follow them around around the tennis club. And um, my dad got one of his old wooden squash rackets and he cut the handle off the squash racket to make it shorter and wrapped a new grip round it. And that was my tennis racket to start with. 
Um, and I've still got it, actually. I found it in the loft the other day. Um, but I, 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 so, yeah, it wasn't in my family. I think I just, I, 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 what I love is the feel of the ball on the racket. Um, and because it feels different every time you hit a ball. And so I, I love when you hit it right and you get it right. I, I think that's a really nice feeling. And that's what I kind of always strive to strive to, to have when I, when I hit the ball. So I suppose that's my, I'm addicted to that sort of, you know, that feel of, of getting the ball perfectly on the strings. And would you be able to tell us, can you think of anything in your head that's your first sort of tennis memory? Maybe a particular Wimbledon final or something. Can you can you remember what your first memory of watching tennis was? It's difficult because I was playing tennis all the time. So I didn't actually watch much tennis um, when I was a kid. And then I went off to university and, you know, didn't really watch much tennis then. Um, so, I, 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 you know, my biggest memories of tennis are actually being able to watch you know the whole uh, every match of someone like Murray you know I watched every match of his US Open uh, his first victory at the US Open I watched every point of that because the coverage of, tele- of, of tennis and sport in general has got so much better hasn't it in the last you know 10 or 15 years that you're able to you know the camera angles I mean Sky Sports you know are, I you know they obviously reinvented sport on, on television by the camera angles and the analysis and I think that that's when I really got into enjoying watching tennis was because they would get you know people like Mark Petri I think you know the analysis they brought to tennis was brilliant so that ability to watch every single match of someone like Murray winning the US Open is is, is a really abiding memory and I've forgotten them, but I did for quite a while. I knew every round of that US Open that he won. Um, I think he beats. I think he had a really tough one against Lopez at one point on the. Is it the? What's the second court? Is it the Armstrong, which at the US Open? And um, I don't think he liked Armstrong court that much, Murray. And he got drawn, I think, against Lopez on it. And he had an incredibly tough match. Um, and then also, it was really windy. And I don't know if you remember, but um, he had to play Burditch in the semi-final of that US Open. And um, there were, like, the chairs were blowing over the court. It was so windy. But, again, it was another, it was another really good example of Murray just going, look, I don't care, I'm going to win this. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I could, I could sit, sit here and indulge about Andy Murray all night. One, one particular memory for me, um, which obviously you, you must be familiar with, was um, my first sort of year of watching tennis was uh, 2008, which I believe was when Murray got to the US Open final. And it seemed a bit sort of unexpected, his first, his first Grand Slam final, losing, losing to Roger Federer. Um, of course, and yet, yeah, just that tournament. I think he was still a teenager. Was just really eye-opening as just someone that that burst onto the scene. And with with the game that he had at that age, um, mm. I'll always have that. That will always stick in my mind, even though you you see the pictures of his women winning the titles and reaching world number one and so far in in his career that followed. I just um, yeah, that was just something that I really enjoyed watching him. He beat Nadal in, in the semi-final that year, and yeah, that that was just an incredible watch and. Um, yeah, a memory, memory that I'll cherish. Uh, um, you know, we, we might not get a, another, another player like him for a very long time. Yeah, definitely. That's true. So, Tim, thank you very much for coming on the, the pod this week uh, and, and chatting to us. Uh, it's been really good insight 
for us and we hope you've enjoyed it too yeah it was yeah really nice to chat to you guys and uh uh, I hope uh, I hope things go well and uh, you carry on improve. I uh, carry on growing your pod and everything. So that's, I think it's a good idea.